the contributions to creating the problem of climate change have been disproportionately been elites in a whole range of countries, disproportionately being the richer nations. They're the ones who can afford to um, adapt and protect themselves from the impacts of climate change. And that the burdens of climate change will disproportionately fall on people who are already disadvantaged. In this episode of Exploring Violence and Society, I have a conversation with Associate Professor Cassandra Starr from Flinders University about the conflict and violence that can result from climate change and the role of government in promoting well-being for its citizens. Environmental security and climate security in particular, um, that suggests that one of the things that leads to violence or motivates violence is... um, competition for scarce resources well what's going to be the outcome of a of a climate changed future mm-hmm. so there's likely to be shortages that we haven't seen before around water food land um, that are theorized to bring about pressures and violence and conflict This is a podcast for critical and imaginative conversations about this complex social issue. My name is Ben Lohmeyer and welcome to Exploring Violence and Society. My guest today is Associate Professor Cassandra Starr. Cassandra is the Research Section Head and Research Theme Leader at Flinders Government. Her research concentrates on the interface between politics and the policy process and the impact on policy formation. In particular, she focuses on climate politics and policy, the ways in which stakeholders shape and manipulate the climate policy agenda. Cassandra has received awards for her teaching, attracts significant amounts of funding for her research, regularly offers leadership advice to government (laughs) and non-government organisations, her giggling in the background, as well as winning fellowships uh, around the globe, including the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Somehow, among all of this, she found time to be an incredibly supportive and inspiring supervisor for my PhD, uh, for which I am eternally grateful. So thanks for coming on the podcast. (laughs) Thanks for inviting me, Ben, Ben, and um, thanks for that um, impressive introduction. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. Give a bit of background. All right, so to get us started, uh, usually when we think of ideas like violence, we would probably think about people and maybe at a push we might start thinking about animals. How can we start thinking about the destruction of the environment um, and ecosystems in terms of the language of violence? Mm. Um, in thinking about this, um, one of the, the key concepts I guess or lenses that informs my work is the idea of environmental justice and there there are two components to the way environmental justice is articulated in the literature and one of those is about justice within the environment so that's um, the the space and the place where we live how do we articulate environmental justice within that and that One is specifically about humans within the environment. So uh, if we look at environmental destruction, if we look at um, the impacts of climate change, what's the justice element or the justice aspect of that and how does it apply to people in that place? So that gets us thinking about that um, with climate change, for example, um, 
the contributions to creating the problem of climate change have been disproportionately been elites in a whole range of countries, disproportionately being the richer nations. They're the ones who can afford to um, adapt and protect themselves from the impacts of climate change. And the, the burdens of climate change will disproportionately fall on people who are already disadvantaged. So countries that are um, lesser developed, um, people who live on the margins of society who can't afford to adapt, can't afford to move away from the impacts, um, and poorer communities, often also women. So that's a um, justice within the environment lens. So that's kind of trying to rephrase that to yep. see if I've got my head around it. So it's looking at the causes and the who, who causes and the impacts mm. of climate change mm. uh, for humans specifically. Yes. Okay, great. Mm. Um, and often also the question of, well, who should pay for these problems? Mm, okay. So, um, but there's a, that's the one strand of environmental justice, but there's this other strand which is about justice to the environment. Great, okay. So how can we have a relationship as humans with the environment where we live that is just? Mm. And, and what might that mean? What might that look like? And there's a whole set of literature, which is less where I work, because I'm usually on the, the human bit, okay. which is about, you know, well, how, how do we come up with a way of incorporating justice to the environment? Do we have a, a Bill of Rights for the environment? Do we um, try and incorporate uh, animals or species or individuals from the environment into our decision-making? How could we practically do that? How do we how do we conceptualise justice? How do we know what the you know the benefits and burdens are that we should be considering in those decisions? Yeah, okay. So there's a lot of people who work in the kind of environmental philosophy space who are much more on that side. Yeah, okay. Mm. So that makes sense. Because when we think of the ideas like justice, it's a pretty human-centric idea. Mm. You know, it starts with the assumption that yeah. we're talking about people. Mm. So it's very difficult to then uh, translate that to something that's not human, whether it mm. be um, you know, a being like an animal or you know, an object like a rock. Mm. You know, how do we think about justice in those things? Mm. Or an ecosystem as a whole, which makes it more difficult again. Because ecosystems have... A whole range of moving parts that um, you know a small change here will have an impact over there and so even moving from thinking about individual animals or individual plants to how the ecosystem interacts together mm-hmm. is a different thing because then that gets you thinking about some of those challenges like well um, if climate change brings about um, uh, climatic impacts which are beneficial for some parts of the ecosystem and detrimental for others how do you balance those concerns yeah okay interesting Um, because in in one respect environmental change um, can be really beneficial for humans uh, because being largely the drivers of that change but if we have that the ecological perspective or ecosystem perspective we can see that it, that comes at a cost to another part of that system yeah yeah mm, okay but your interest is more in the the first stream that mm. you were talking about yes okay and I guess that's because my specific disciplinary background is around politics and policy and that 
sort of fits more there. And there's a range of things that gets us thinking about. So things like, you know, what are the disproportionate harms of environmental destruction? Um, and that can be anything from um, air pollution and the impacts on lower socioeconomic families and children, people who um, live close to roadways, mm, okay. um, those sorts of things, to hazardous waste and how we deal with that. Because my disciplinary background is political science and public policy. And that really does focus on people and their interactions. And, you know, there are a range of things to, that you can focus on looking at that kind of environmental justice lens. And one of those is the, the disproportionate distribution of harms that come from environmental destruction, but also the benefits, mm. disproportionate benefits, mm. because that's one of the reasons why, as humans, we're destroying the environment. <laughs> it's because it there's, there's a dollar in it. Yeah. There is a dollar in it. Um, but the, you know, the accruing of that benefit tends to be to a particular group in society, but the, the burdens fall on a different group. So those who benefit from this destruction are not the ones living next to coal-fired power stations yeah. or the ones whose farm is directly next to fracking wells. Mm-hmm. Um, the, those harms tend to fall disproportionately on groups that are already disadvantaged in society and who can least afford to adapt if we're talking about climate change or move away if we're talking about other kinds of environmental harm. So the poor, um, often there's a crossover also with um, Indigenous people and people of colour disproportionately affected, um, women in some societies disproportionately affected. Uh, so um, environmental justice is a lens that I use to kind of understand those issues from a political perspective, but also um, from a policy perspective, what we, can we do which fixes that? Right. Okay. So it's looking at, yeah, like you described, that first stream of where uh, there's changes in the environment and that affects certain people more than others. It's also caused maybe by certain people more than others. Um, so there's a question of, of benefit uh, and harm involved. Um, so yeah, so that, that connects back to the conversation about where violence uh, in our society exists um, and what are some of the, the causes and benefits and harms of that? Um, okay, that's great. So environmental justice. That's, but there's some other frames that you use as well to, to think about this question. Yeah, and, you know, they're connected to environmental justice. But um, there's some particular, I guess, theorising and understanding about um, violence related to environment. And there's two ways of looking at that I guess. One is kind of the obvious one that um, violence and war creates environmental damage. Okay. So mm. you know, if you look at um, Afghanistan for example, um, looking at pictures from before and after the war, there's, there's a very clear, even just visual impact, but there's quite a real environmental impact. Right, okay. So that's that's human violence that has a side effect mm. on the environment. Mm. Um, would you also call the the effect violence as well, or is it just mm. seeing that as a side effect? 
I think you could call it violence because it's the violence that we as humans are doing to the environment, mm. whether that's to individuals within the environment or ecosystems or species. Sure. Mm. Yeah. So it is the violence that we do to them. Yeah. And that's often kind of overlooked or ignored because it's not a primary mm. focus of, say, war. Mm. You know, the war mm. is focused on uh, civilizations or, mm. or individual people um, and the, the side effect is the impact on the environment. So that would be generally ignored and overlooked. So that's mm. an important part of what your work or your approach highlights. Mm. Yeah. And then I guess the flip side of that and something that's increasingly being taken quite seriously is um, what might be um, the impact of environmental changes in terms of motivating violence. Okay. So um, there's a, a stream of thought around environmental security and climate security in particular um, that suggests that you know, one of the things that leads to violence or motivates violence is um, competition for scarce resources. Sure. Uh, and, you know, if we look at... There's a whole lot of literature about early states and how they came about, which looks at this, mm -hmm. um, but applies uh, a contemporary lens or contemporary um, set of questions around, well, what's going to be the outcome of a, of a climate-changed future? Mm -hmm. And the, you know, the projections around climate change suggest that um, some areas of the world there will be less water, some areas of the world will disappear underwater, <laughs> um, and that um, at best cropping zones for um, cropping will move around. So there will be some places where they will have been able to grow crops or certain types of crops previously where they won't be able to in future, and there's the ability to adapt to that in some places but that's a medium term thing not a in one season sort of thing mm, okay. so there's likely to be shortages that we haven't seen before around water, food, land mm. um, that are theorised to bring about pressures and violence and conflict Sure, okay, so the changes in climate can put pressure on territory um, resources like food and water mm. uh, and likely to cause war and, and mm. violence. And that's that's the economic, sorry, not economic, mm. environmental security. Yeah, and climate points. security. And climate mm. security, okay. Mm. Yeah, so who who's invested in this way of viewing climate change and, and the potential for violence? Are there certain governments or other groups who, who have taken this frame on or is it more an academic sort of conversation? Where does that fit? So um, definitely early on in, I guess, the early 90s, it definitely was an academic conversation um, where people were theorising what a climate future could look like and what would be the impacts of that. And, you know, certainly at this time, most governments were like, oh, that's a long way away. It'll all be fine. Um, and here we are, and it's not a long way away, and we're not fine. Um and there are a number of reports that have been um, put together by often academics together with militaries. Sure. Um, but there are 
military positions on some of this now. Um, they have real concerns about what it might mean in some areas. Sure. So, for example, the US military is quite concerned what that might mean and what that might look like in the Middle East, yeah. particularly around water where that's a constraint in that area already. Mm, okay, yeah. Um, and... You know, they're also concerned about what will be the impact on their own infrastructure. Yeah. So, you know, lots of militaries have bases in other places and they have, um, you know, standing groups of personnel in other places and what it could mean for that. Um, And I guess, you know, in a place where there will be scarcity and militaries are normally well prepared, that also kind of makes them a bit vulnerable to what happens in local communities. Mm, okay. um, so it is a, a definitely a policy issue now um, rather than a theoretical discussion. Okay. So I can see that quite clearly at, at almost an international level. Mm. Is it reasonable to say that that could potentially be happening? You know, the consequences can be at a national and an interpersonal level as mm. well. So I'm imagining... Um, you know, if we're talking about scarcity of resources, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean two countries would have mm. to go to war, but it could be uh, people within a country mm. competing for resources, so civil war, mm. um, or even on a local community level when you have scarcity in, in uh, perhaps in your local supermarket mm. or um, you know, some people have uh, their... I'm thinking about some of the countries where um, that are suffering from rising sea levels. Mm. You know, so suddenly we've got... not we've got individuals who own a piece mm. of land mm. whose piece of land does not exist anymore. Mm. Um, so, And yet their, their neighbours does, which is just up the road. It's a little bit higher. Mm. So, yeah, that seems like that's got multiple levels of impact. Definitely. So, um, I mean, taking the sea level rise example, um, you know, Australia is right in the middle of where sort of eight of the ten um, sort of nations or countries which are likely to disappear first are. Okay. Um, and that's not a, um, a proposition in the future anymore yeah. for some of these countries because what happens is before, most of them are small island, small island nations, and what happens before um, the land actually disappears is the salt water rises up through the water table. Mm. So the first thing that happens is that they can't grow food anymore. Mm. Okay. And most of these are those sorts of... They're not, you know let's just go down to the supermarket instead. Mm. They are subsistence countries. Yeah. So um, that conflict, that causes conflict immediately. So your plot of land might still be there, but you can't grow anything on it, Mm. and then you can't feed your family. Mm. And so the interpersonal conflict is is immediately there. Mm. But if we're looking at um, a... Um, an example which is kind of more close to home or sure. more similar to our experience, you could look at the the water problem in Flint, Michigan, in okay. the US, yeah. where they haven't had, houses haven't had water that can be drunk, plumbed to their house. We're into the years now. Right. So it means that the small, quite poor community and predominantly black, that is where this has happened, all of a sudden have to buy all of their water. Mm. And that causes conflict because mm. there are clearly people who can and can't afford that. Yep. So um, the the likelihood of conflict is high. Yeah, okay. And that's a really concrete example from the US, but mm. I'm thinking about uh, recent environmental changes along the River Murray in Australia. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there's towns there who have 
questioning their access mm. to drinkable, consumable water and mm. seeing some of their access um, yeah, not, not being as available in the past. Mm. So this conflict is very close to home in, mm. in that sense as well. Is that a similar sort of set of circumstances? Definitely. Um, I mean, the, the Murray-Darling Basin in Australia is a, a, a quagmire of failed environmental policy. <laughs> Um, and not just recently, but over a long period of time. It has an illustrious history. Um, but, you know, within some of those communities, some of this is very contentious. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've had social scientists from Flinders who, who've gone out and spoken in those communities. Yeah. And the conflict is significant because the, the trade-offs between different uses of water are right in front of them. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, if this large group of corporate farms who often are not people who live in the community, who it's often open, owned by foreign corporations, mm-hmm. get this allocation of water, um, I won't have enough for, for my family. Sure, yeah. Mm. Yeah, wow. Mm, okay, so we can see that the... The idea of justice and violence in the environmental context is really important for us to consider because it has not only implications for um, you know, broad international competition for resources, um, it has implications for local community mm-hmm. competition for resources. It can be a, a causal um, or a force for mm-hmm. creating conflict and the potential for violence. Uh, and this is just all within focusing on human beings. You know, this is yeah. just humans as the central. Mm. We haven't even really unpacked at length mm. that other stream that you mm. talked about, which is saying, well, hang on, what if there's some question about justice for the environment in and of itself? Mm. Um, which leads me a little bit into my next question for you. Um, one, I mean, this is definitely almost going to be taking you out of context for a previous conversation that we've had. Uh, but Very cheeky of you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So the, the quote I want to throw back at you is, you think it's, quote, time to roll out the tanks uh, to protect the environment. So I suppose my question here is, is about what is our role in protecting the environment uh, and probably even more specifically the role of government and policy in trying to protect uh, environmental destruction or prevent environmental destruction as almost government as custodians for future mm. generations. How, do, how can we think about um, the need to prevent that conflict by protecting the environment? And, and I guess my answer to this is it's a bit of a tricky question um, and part of that's because it gets to the heart of what we think the role of government is. Mm, okay. Um, so I think the role of government <laughs> is to create better outcomes for citizens. And lots of citizens would agree with that assessment, that we think that's what governments are supposed to do. Um, and providing a healthy environment and a safe climate clearly falls within that, that that is something that leads to better wellbeing for citizens, um, better life chances, a better society... Um, and there are obviously flow-on effects and path dependencies for future generations of decisions that we make today mm-hmm. and the roads that we choose not to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and future generations are already telling us we're doing a bad job. <laughs> um, so the climate strike movement, yes. so um, school children striking over climate change mm-hmm. and Greta mm-hmm. um, in Europe, and Extinction Rebellion, which is a, another broad-based popular protest at the moment, saying um, that they're very anxious about what the future will look like. Um, 
largely they've been spurred on by recent reporting which says that we have 10 or 12 years to make really significant change now Mm. or um, we will go past the point of what they consider to be a a safe climate which is a rise of about one and a half or two degrees celsius depending on who you talk to okay that that past that point triggers um, consequences which are unpredictable and perhaps unadaptable. Okay. Can you break this down for us just a little bit more? Because I think that message is something that um, I'm certainly a little bit familiar Mm. with uh, and that people might hear on the news, Mm. uh, but they're not necessarily is it clear what the full implications for mm. or, or where those implications fit. So given we've just had a conversation about um, uh, Central for Conflict mm. and War, is that one of the potential outcomes yes. of a two-degree rise? Can mm. you tell us any more about what that means? So a two-degree, beyond a two-degree rise, um, scientists tell us that um, the kinds of things, the kinds of climate variability that we will see, not just increases in temperature, but variability means... Um, Increases in what we would consider, um, well, in a normal climate or a safe climate, we would consider um, rare events. Okay. So in some areas that might mean more cyclones. Sure. Um, in some areas um, like Adelaide, uh, that might mean more of those horrible heat waves, which we might only have one of mm-hmm. every five years. Maybe we'll have one every year okay so um and those sort of events have um, particular consequences um and putting the environmental justice lens on again those consequences tend to fall more heavily on people who um live close to coastlines um people who live in areas where or people who can't afford to adapt Mm -hmm. so they can't change um, the kind of housing stock that they live in mm-hmm. to, to be more protected from these events. There may be more bushfires, etc. So as an example of that, I'm just picking up on the Adelaide mm. example. I say we have a, a severe heat wave every mm. year. Um, some of the people that are regularly talked about as being impacted by that mm. are older people yes. and younger people. Mm. And, you know, the people who, like I said, they can't adapt. Mm. Perhaps their housing is not appropriate. They don't have air conditioning. They don't have the insulation needed to, to cope through those times. Or the older people who don't run their air conditioning because they're afraid of the bill. Great. Okay, mm. there you go. So you can see the, the direct impact on people and, the, and again, I suppose the, the injustice of that, so that it's, it's adversely impacting more vulnerable people. Yeah, and so they're really their, I guess, um, battle cry is that, you know, governments are not doing the right thing, they're not doing enough, they're not doing it quickly. And, you know, it really is, I think, um, an interesting political question in terms of what governments think that their job is versus what we think that their job is and who they should be listening to um, in terms of influencing that. Um, And... Different governments have had different responses. So obviously um, there are a number of governments overseas that have made significant progress on emissions reduction, which is what um, the protesters are calling for. Um, These are not exclusively but largely European governments. Mm -hmm. Um, There are other governments which have had what we might say is very poor progress. 
Um, the Australian government is one of those, but also the Canadian government uh, and the current US government, though the previous one had stronger policies. Mm. Um, and so um, it's interesting that there isn't the kind of response that we might expect to see in terms of what people are telling us is the urgency of this problem. But those were national governments that I spoke about. Often state governments and local governments do a better job. Wow, okay. Um, so um, California is a good example in the United States. Um, they're the eighth largest economy in the world. Just even, California. Yeah, yeah, even though they're just a state. Wow. Um, so the, the changes that they make drive significant um, kind of ripple effects elsewhere sure. because of how large they are. Um, and, you know, they've made good progress. So it kind of shows that, you know, governments aren't all the same mm. when it comes to this issue. So why do you think it is that small, those state governments or local governments are mm. making changes where national ones don't seem to be? Mm. What do you think that's about? Um, there's a whole range of reasons why that might be the case. Um in the case of California, there was quite specific leadership from a group of people, so that made a difference. Sure. Um, and local governments sometimes are more easily persuaded, um, particularly because you can go to them with um, quite concrete ideas. So one of the things that local governments can do is in relation to housing stock in particular introduce new requirements for houses to be climate-proofed. Think about how they're going to develop new coastlines and change some of that, buy back some of that land, Mm -hmm. and so that there's no vulnerable housing stock there. Um, Change the way that they develop. And also, local governments are... It's kind of a low barrier uh, or um, has low barriers to entry if you're someone who's passionate about climate change you can kind of try and take over your local government in a way because, you know... Not in a military coup way. No, 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 in a becoming a local councillor and a whole group of you doing that. So there's more... And there's more independent political candidates at the local level, so it's more ability to kind of change the conversation by changing over the people. Whereas um, national governments are often locked into a very specific conversation about climate change and about environmental issues. Gotcha. Um, the Australian government's certainly one of those. Mm. Okay. Um, this actually, again, segues quite nicely into the next little question I want to ask you about because uh, a decent amount of your research has been on community action and, uh, and um, activism, I suppose, around climate change. Uh, so you've talked a little bit about some of the ways in which we can affect local government. Mm. Uh, is there are other things that we should be thinking about uh, that we can do? You know, what mm. can we do to, to be effective in creating some change? Mm. And, I mean, I guess one of the reasons that I'm quite interested in activism is about people's agency in doing something about these sorts of problems, particularly, you know, if we're here in the Australian context where... Um, the the likelihood of a sensible and effective climate policy at the national level, uh, I think we should give up on that almost. Okay. Um, at the current time, sure. um, 
you know, we, we're locked into a, a conversation where um, climate, is con- climate policy is considered um, a, a place where it's a trade-off for jobs um, and a trade-off for the, the economic, um, I wouldn't say prosperity, but the economic activity that comes from fossil fuel extraction, which is sure. important in Australia. Yeah. So... I think community action and activism is a place where we can redirect that energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of things people can do, there's there are lots of really good examples actually in the academic literature but also out there in the community of where communities are making effective change themselves. Right. Um, and there's a couple of different ways that they've done that. Um, one of the ways is... Um, joining together to make decision makers change their mind. Okay. Um, and often that's been really effective where we see coalitions of groups come together. Sure. And in the Australian context, um, in particular where most of the mining activity and um, fossil fuel activity is happening in rural and regional communities, mm-hmm. Um, the alliances we've seen, which I didn't think I'd see in my lifetime, sure. between farmers and um, environmentalists, nice. uh, traditionally um, a place of conflict, sure. <laughs> um, have, have come together as coalitions really effectively um, and have led to changes in policy, have led to moratoriums on... Um, fracking or coal seam gas exploitation mm-hmm. have led to um, mining permits not going ahead uh, and that's really significant from a climate point of view because any new coal mine is new emissions yeah sure um, so farmers and environmentalists coming together to and what is quite an unusual um, coalition or alliance has been very effective because it shows that there's um, united consensus mm. against what decision makers are wanting to do. Mm. Okay. Well, that's a really fascinating case because uh, you've got an example of people who would generally be opposed. Oh, they don't like each other. A source of, mm. of violent behaviour. <clears throat> people tend to some of the um, you know, activist kind of behaviour in the past of locking themselves to, to gates or, or things like that or, or stealing... But also from the farming perspective, there have been recent examples of um, uh, individuals or communities who've had quite conflictual and even violent behaviour against those who they see as environmentalists or policing them in environmental ways. Mm-hmm. So a um, oh, was he? he was from can't remember the exact details of the case, but he was a public sector worker sure. who was visiting a farm to look at their what he thought was um, non-compliance with land clearing um, legislation, and he was shot and killed by oh, wow. a farmer okay. in rural New South Wales, I think oh, it was. Okay. So there is strong conflict between those communities traditionally. Yeah. But here we can see them coming together and finding their similarities to to, to work on that course. That's really interesting. Um, one of the things you said before uh, was that 
it's almost worth giving up on on certain mm. spheres to create change. Mm. Uh, but then you said to focus the energy in another place mm. uh, because you see that kind of activism activism as an expression of people's agency. Mm. Uh, whereas I think you could almost make the argument fairly easily that violent behaviour is another expression mm. of people's agency, perhaps a more frustrated version mm. of that. Um, so and it could be seen as a a violence prevention strategy, mm-hmm. for lack of a better way of phrasing yeah. it, to say here's some forms of yeah. activism and change that mm-hmm. you can become engaged in that mm-hmm. have realistic mm-hmm. um, opportunities for success mm-hmm. as well. And so you're going, you're probably wasting time here, but over here mm-hmm. we've we've got a decent chance of success, and that's preventing uh, perhaps the kind of reactions you were just describing uh, in conflict between between mm-hmm. traditionally opposing mm-hmm. groups. Yeah, uh, and I would agree that you know the vi- violence is frustrated agency for sure, and there, there's definitely been some on the environmentalist side, less in Australia. Um, there, there are some quite famous examples in the United States of groups who are, are really clear that um, violence is on the table. Um, they blow up um, sports utility vehicles. They put, um, you know, they ruin um, mining and forestry machinery. Sure. Um, they put spikes into trees that are going to go to milling, all of that sort of thing. Right. So Earth First is probably the most well-known of those groups. Okay. Um, they do have an outpost in Australia, but they're not that active. Sure. Um, but I'm all about the let's redirect it somewhere where we can do something approach. And we have increasingly seen communities bypassing government and making changes on their own. And sometimes that's um, direct lobbying or direct engagement with the business interests. But sometimes it's more about focusing on their community and building something of their own. Okay. So that might include community-owned energy... Sure. Um, it can include um, the building of green businesses. Mm-hmm. So um, there's an example in Brisbane, I don't think we have one in Adelaide, where um, it's called reverse garbage and they take things that might normally have gone to landfill from businesses and they have a warehouse where they then sell those at reasonable cost to the community and all sorts of unusual things Um, but there's a whole range of these things that have opened up and springing up around the place including in Adelaide like repair cafes things that people might normally have thrown away before they go to the repair cafe and learn how to fix it or have someone fix it for them Wow. Um, community vegetable gardens food waste programs Mm. where um you know, the, whoever has the program goes around to a whole range of food uh, wholesalers or retailers, takes things that they're not going to sell anymore, and then um, either donates that to um, homeless or women's shelters or cooks it up themselves and serves it up to people. Um, so it's stopping what would be an environmental bad and turning it into something good. Fascinating. That's great. Mm. Mm. Okay. And and the focus with lots of those is about changed material flows. So material flows, so like food, water, um, what we buy, what we sell, makes the world go round, makes mm-hmm. capitalism go round. Mm-hmm. And it's that kind of goes along with the adage that, you know, use your money to buy the world you want to see so by shifting where we spend money and what we buy and sell and how 
we change capitalism. Yeah, great. And we, you know, try and turn it into a more environmental version. Yeah, okay. So that's bypassing government by mm. making the the action that you would want mm. government to do, you can do it yourself in, mm. in terms of what you buy or the businesses you mm. create or mm. uh, the materials that you can repurpose. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's a good news story, but the caveat I'd put on that yeah. is that, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about um, our individual responsibility for climate change, mm-hmm. that as individuals, things that we do, you know, are, are wrecking the world. Um, and, you know, there are all sorts of kind of... There's a lot of commentary on that, that as an individual, you know, we should catch the bus and walk everywhere, that um, as an academic, I should stop flying to conferences, um, that we should all be vegan... And then everything would be good with the world. And I'm sorry to break the bad news, but it's kind of crap because... (laughs) Tell us why it's crap. (laughs) Because um, 70% of the world's emissions come from just 100 companies. So this is not a problem that we can solve by being individually virtuous. Okay. Individual virtue, fantastic. But let's not beat ourselves up and let's keep our eye on the real prize. This is a problem that governments fix by regulating those 100 corporations gotcha. or those 100 companies. Okay. And mm. so that's what we need them to do. Correct. Or, you know, if we have to individually contribute to that, we stop buying everything from those 100 companies. Mm. But that's a, a much more difficult process. Sure. Mm. And that would have costs and... Uh, harms to certain groups as well. Yes. It's easy for me to say as a relatively middle-class person to stop buying mm. a certain product from the local mm. grocery store, that's the right. multinational grocery mm. store, but that's because I can afford to. Yeah. Uh, whereas, so if it's you just You can about, afford to vote with your money. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Whereas there are other population, parts of our population who can't afford to mm. not buy the cheap version mm. of whatever it is. Mm, okay. So there are some things we can do. Mm. There are some things that maybe we should give up on mm-hmm. and there are some other big prizes that we need to campaign for even mm-hmm. if it doesn't necessarily look like we're getting some immediate change. Mm-hmm. Does any of this link well uh, to the idea of green political theory? You know, and mm-hmm. What's the connection there in the work that you're doing to this mm-hmm. idea? And I guess the, the green political theory um, broad debate or broad framework that I think is most useful is that when we look at green political theory, there's this distinction between environmentalism and ecologism. So environmentalism is really about we, we manage environmental problems and um, that there's a way to solve them which doesn't require us to change anything fundamental. Sure. So no changes in our present values or present types of production or consumption and it's probably clear from the conversation that we've just had Mm -hmm. that that's not the camp I put myself in Um, so ecologism says that if we're going to have a sustainable and fulfilling existence which is kind of what I've said that government's job is is to help us have that um, that there actually have to be some radical changes probably mm. um, with the non-human natural world mm-hmm. but also with um, 
social, current social and political life. Okay. So environmentalism fits in easy to other kinds of ideologies and that's how we've ended up in a place where there are neoliberal approaches mm-hmm. to environmentalism, like, you know, we can fix everything by putting a price on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it can easily be subsumed into those things because it doesn't require radical change. Whereas ecologism um, and wherever you fit in a spectrum of different things that fit in there sure. kind of self-consciously says that we have to confront some of these, the status quo and some of these dominant paradigms. Mm-hmm. So green political theory really is the what sits across ecologism. So if you think there needs to be significant change and a reformation of relationships in the world, that's where you are. And it is the starting point (laughs) for my work. Um, So I'm saying that, you know, my work starts from that point that we have to confront the status quo and our current dominant paradigms. Um, And so that informs environmental justice and climate justice and that's the approach the lens that i apply in my work interesting i almost feel like a conversation has kind of zoomed out as we've Mm -hmm. gone so now we've we started with some fairly concrete examples Mm -hmm. and now we're at at the macro level Mm -hmm. um is there there another way of saying what you're saying and see if i'm on the same page is Mm -hmm. that it's the issues that we're seeing with climate justice um that we're seeing with uh, interpersonal and then national conflicts um, that result from environmental and ecological change uh, are connected to the other issues that we see and injustices that we see in, in society. So it's not it's not simply that these injustices exist here, but they're, they're connected to a broader network. Um, so the violence that we see there is a violence problem that we have as a global society. Yes, exactly. Um, so there are some particular green political um, theory perspectives or green political theories which have uh, quite concrete ways which they draw those connections. So ecofeminism, for example. Sure. Ecofeminism basically says that um, the violence um, and the injustice that we do to the environment is a reflection of the violence and injustice that is done to women within society because the environment is othered just in the same way as women are othered mm. um, by the, the dominant paradigm. Mm. So there are a number of other different lenses. That's mm. just one example from green political theory. But, yes, mm. that um, these are manifestations of broader um, social and political concerns. Um, there's also kind of your... Um, eco-Marxists or eco-anarchists who basically, you know, broaden out the other, well, you know, the mainstream critiques that come from Marxism or anarchism about social and political relationships in society and say that, you know, what's happening to the environment is an extension of those problems Mm. um, based on the relationship of hierarchy within society or based on the relationship of um, consumer capitalism within society. Yeah, okay. Wow, all right. So that's just a small topic for us to finish <laughs> on and try it. Um, yeah. yeah, we'll just take it next 
you know, the rest of our lifetime trying to break down all those individual bits. Mm-hmm. But if people did want to keep that line of thought going mm-hmm. and investigate a bit further, can you recommend some resources for us to check out? Yeah, and I had to think about this and what I thought would be most interesting. Um, if you're interested in the the changing of material flows at that local level, what individuals and groups are doing to kind of reform inside um, capitalism, um, there's a new book coming out by um, my friend David Schlossberg and Luke Craven on sustainable materialism, which I think will be really interesting and they've sent me an early version to look at. Nice. Um, so that will be, I think that's great um, because I think people are quite interested in that sort of, you know, what can I, I know that the problems are big, but what can I do as an individual and how does that lead to change? For sure. Um, if you're interested in that debate about climate security, there's a very good paper by Matt McDonald that I can recommend where he kind of lays out the debate and where it's come from and what are the big differences in the debate and different ways of understanding that idea of environmental security and climate in particular. Um, And in terms of green political theory, um, the good kind of overview book that I would recommend is one by John Dryzek. Um, It's called um, Politics of the Earth and Environmental Discourses. And what he does in there is he looks at some of the key traditions in Um, green political theory and looks at um, based on a discourse approach what are the sort of the the key messages and key metaphors and key um, messages within those and compares them great Uh, excellent all right that sounds like fascinating resources we'll definitely find those and provide links to them um what about your own work before we finish up? Tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment. Are there any forthcoming books or papers or things that people could check out? Okay. Um, I'm putting the finishing touches on a book on the evolution of climate movements in Australia, the US and the UK, um, which has been kind of a, a long labour of love. So it covers um, a period from... 2005 until 2019. Wow, great. Um, and what has happened in, because in 2005, climate movements as a separate kind of thing were only just beginning. Sure. And to the point today where they're a very particular kind of presence. Mm. Um, and I'm also working on a project on climate resilience. So looking in that space around climate security. Um, with the Department of Defence and how we understand climate resilience in the Australian context Mm -hmm. and how um, the different parts of government might all all contribute to that. Wow. Fascinating. Okay, so if we wanted to follow those up, where could we find you on the internet to to look for those resources? I'm everywhere. (laughs) Um, I'm very active on Twitter. It's easy to find me. Great. Um, also, my Flinders profile um, is probably the easiest way to find contacts, but I'm also on LinkedIn. So. Great. All right. Mm. I might provide a couple of links maybe to your Twitter account and the Flinders mm-hmm. profile. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been a really enjoyable conversation and a lot left to think about. Mm. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> links to the resources discussed in the podcast are provided in the show notes. If you like the podcast, please share it around. My name is Ben Lomire. Thank you for listening to Exploring Violence and Society.